Hello and welcome to the Stemlands podcast. Back in December 2018, I got together with Peter Brindley at the Intensive Care Society's State of the Art meeting in London. And it was a really great conversation based really on the the lectures and presentations he'd given and, and other people at the conference around the use of technology. Now, in an intensive care society meeting, then the use of technology is unsurprisingly quite a big theme. But they explored in some detail how the future might change with different ways of us thinking about big data, about diagnostic algorithms, about algorithms in general, about how we could manage our patients. And there's always an enthusiasm for that sort of thing. It all sounds crazy and exciting, but Peter brought very much the human side of the argument to the table. And in this conversation, which is sort of fairly wide-ranging and a little bit random at times, he and I explore why humans are always going to be needed in critical care, emergency medicine, pre-hospital care, and wherever there is that degree of complexity and the balance of what is really worthwhile and what is valuable in patient outcomes, in clinical care, and in the economies we work in. So have a listen. I hope you enjoy it. It's uh, Peter's first time on the podcast, but he's a great friend, and we're delighted to have him here today. Hello, and welcome to the Intensive Care Society State of the Art Meeting 2018. I'm here with, well, I am Simon Carley. This is... Uh, Peter Brinley, and you are Simon Carley. I'm excited to be sitting down and chatting with you. Well, it's lovely to see you again, because we kind of meet all over the world. I think this is the first time we've actually met in the UK. Uh, Absolutely, and... and your podcast is wonderful. Thank you very much. Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I'm an intensivist uh, full-time in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, western slopes, of, or rather the eastern slopes of the Rockies. Born and raised in the UK, so I always come back to this meeting whenever I can. Uh, trained as a physician, but probably should have been an anesthetist, interested in human factors, crisis management, and that sort of segued into resilience burnout and all of those topics that mean everything and nothing at the same time well they mean a hell of a lot because i think well, there's a do. huge amount of interest in that sort of thing here i mean i would also say the reason why you keep getting invited back and we meet all over the world is because you're an excellent speaker very entertaining i've always captured the imagination and also sometimes a little bit controversial and you have been a little controversial in this meeting i think brilliantly so but what the themes you've been talking about, one I wanted to pick up on is this idea of really getting beyond human factors and this sort of interplay that you've been talking about between technology and the human. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, Donald Trump wants to have Mexico build a wall across that border. I mean, I, I don't want to get too carried away, but Silicon Valley should probably have a wall built around it because it's going to endanger more people's jobs or at least... Uh, and Apple should pay for it. Uh, but that probably endangers more people's sense of comfort uh, and, and pushes more of us to make sure when you come to a conference like this, you're not just learning the facts and the manual dexterity of ICU, but actually sort of what is my role, what isn't my role. Computers are coming, big data's coming, AI's coming. What role, what do I bring that's special? And, I, and that's disruptive innovation and challenging and good, but it is disruptive. And the pace of that disruption is really quite frightening. I mean, I think we can already see through the technologies about monitoring, about alerting us to trends in the data which we may not know about that are alerting us to future problems in our patients, that we're starting to get information which at first glance might appear to be helpful, 
But we don't really understand because we don't have that depth of knowledge. We don't have that computing power. I think it was talked about in some of the AI sessions to actually understand where that depth. So we're given information, this is going to happen, or I'm worried about this. But we can't even know why. I think that's beautifully put. I, and, and for many of us, technology is our happy place. As I tried to argue yesterday, for most of our patients, it isn't. I mean, I, I, I think there's many ways to separate intensivists into two groups. But one is whether you love or loathe computers. Now, I'm the sort of person that would be like the patient, just furious with the medical system because they just feel lost within it. And, and please help me out. Please guide me through this. In other words, I picked up on this a couple of days before I came here where I simply wanted to get a data plan put on my phone so I could travel. And I got everything from your call is important to us to we're uh, experiencing higher than usual call volume which is all nonsense. My call's not important to them. My money's important to them. They're perpetually having high call volume, so stop telling me it's unusual. And, and to me, it was a chance to sort of reflect on, hey, I bet that's how our patients and families feel in our system, where you and I as doctors just say, ah, you'll be fine, just do this, or ah, just chat with your general surgeon about that. That's not my problem. And, you know, it... Technology on the whole is our happy place. I don't think it's a lot of our patients' happy place. So if you and I are feeling disrupted, imagine how the poor patient is feeling lost within all of this. I think a good example of that, particularly on the emergency medicine side, is that we're very good at telling people what they don't have, but not terribly good at telling them what they do have. So we walk into the room and go, you don't have this. And they go, fabulous. Yeah, and great. I feel really good. I've done my job and they can go home. But that just leaves a whole vacuum of, of information and, and help. I fear there's also, it's a brilliant point, I fear there's also a danger in the future that nobody will ever be healthy because we're constantly screening people for conditions and we confuse data with information and meaning. So we'll be telling people their blood pressure is two millimeters of mercury higher than it should be, but what the heck does that mean? And the awful danger will be the doctor will leave us say, ah, it's fine, don't worry about it, which is true, yeah. but we'll be seen as dismissive and elitist and not engaging or we will beat ourselves half to death with constantly trying to bring our a-game and explain exactly what it means but by the end of the day literally having no nice left in us so there's some fascinating technological issues to me it's even more fascinating what you and i as monkeys that wear gym shoes as homo sapiens are going to do with all of this well, there is the question. I mean, with all this, with the technology coming in, inevitable, um, our difficulties in going to be handling some really interesting information. So you, you, you chose the BP thing, but I could choose something um, along the lines of saying to you, well, this patient has a 4.6% risk of condition X, and this one has a risk of 7.5. And, and do they have it or don't they have it in a binary world? Absolutely. And we've never been trained to handle that kind of uncertainty and probabilistic type data. But the pop the generation of trainees who are here now will have to be able to deal with that and be able to explain it to their patients. And we know that humans are not good at this. I think that's brilliantly put, Simon. I mean, I, I, was, I don't want to disappear into maxims, but I was taught that medicine is the most humane of the sciences and the most scientific of the humanities. And as doctors, we have to be a bit more multilingual. We have to be able to talk the science and then translate the science, you know, patients and human beings, you and I included the second we step out of the hospital, talk in terms of hopes and fears and meanings. 
I was taught that there's only um, three emotions that matter to humans, fear, greed, and fear. <laughs> and we have to grasp that at the same time as understanding the technology is fabulous, but we'll still filter it through the human experience and the human ability. Now, I would emphasize, I've been to far too many patient safety meetings where the doctor is suggested as the problem. Yeah. And if only we could get rid of our human frailties and uncertainties, and I just don't think that's fair or accurate. That's what patients want is a sense of connection. For goodness sake, that's all any human wants is a sense of connection and well-being. And if you get that through your work, you feel engaged. If you get that through your community, an article that stuck with me for years was in The Guardian that talked about um, a novel cure for sickness, community. And, yeah. it, and it essentially showed that people didn't worry so much about their non-disease diseases if they just felt part of a community. And that's why I love human factors, because you can tease that out. You can always do a yeah, but to the technology at the same time as not dismissing the technology. And that's why, to me, Human Factors 1.0 was how you do a resuscitation, work in a team, give an instruction, take an instruction. Human Factors 2.0 to me is how you maintain yourself and grow as a physician and as an individual. In other words, how you prevent yourself from being mean and impatient and grumpy. Mm. And then Human Factors 3.0 is a better understanding of culture and the fact that you're a janitor some days, but a custodian always. And you, you hold the values of the system. And to me, that's a far more exciting career transition than just the job you do on day one is the job you do on day 10,000. So one of the themes that I found in this meeting, actually, is, and I think it relates to what you just said, is a little bit of a tension between... The, the data, the evidence, the facts, and saying that we have to be clinicians. And also this concept of clinician autonomy. And actually what I think they mean by that increasingly is a combination of the, the clinician-patient autonomy about decision-making. And on the one hand, we have this evidence. And I suppose evidence medicine has always said this, that there will be evidence and you have to balance it with the patient. But that seems to be a theme here, which is becoming quite complicated in, the, in your Human Factors 3.0 that conversation about utility, value, belief, culture um, is going to be perhaps a much bigger theme of what we do as future critical care physicians. I think you've distilled that down beautifully. Um, I just argued in a talk that the ICU should be renamed the RRU, the Relationship Repair Unit, and, or a Relationship Maintenance Unit. It just doesn't sound as pithy. Um, but in many ways it is. It is fascinating if you look at the slight cultural similarities and differences, how we take the same message and we spit it out a different way. Um, this is, it would be slightly scandalous, but you've already said I'm, a, I'm allowed to, to push. I was at a fascinating supper a week or so ago in the UK, and a couple of docs were telling their stories of woe, and we all get together, we need to tell those stories. As we say in Canada, the coyotes need to go on top of the hills yeah. and yip at the end of the day. And this story was essentially, nobody would let me do what I needed to do in the system. Now, you know, we're, we're, autonomy is not just I can do whatever I want. 
you know, a doctor is a healthcare worker authorized to work outside of guidelines. So yes, we won't always follow the algorithm, but if you go off the algorithm, you do have to explain to people who are forced to live in the algorithm why you're doing that if you want to take them with you. But what I found absolutely fascinating with this discussion was they took it only so far and then they stopped. In other words, they advocated for their own autonomy and their own ability to be either disruptive or speak their mind or say their piece. But they didn't go the full length for the patient. And it almost seemed like an atonement session where they said, well, I advocated and I advocated, but people wouldn't let me do, do what I needed yeah. to. Now, I was sitting there as the other colonial at the table. There was myself uh, as a Canadian and there was an Aussie sitting next to me. And he leaned into me. And I'll never repeat who it is. But he said to me, it's interesting here in Britain, isn't it? They always think nanny's in the room. There's a headmaster and they still have to get the headmaster's permission. Now, Canada has all sorts of faults. Mm. We, uh, we flatten the hierarchy very, very quickly. But then as a result, there's a diffusion of responsibility. Who the heck's in charge? I found that observation fascinating as it is simplistic. And that's why I keep coming down on you've got to understand the culture. When we get back to technology, I really feel there are those people, you know them, Simon, their computers fail and it's fascinating. They find it fascinating to work out the tinker and the workaround. Now, I find it fascinating when humans fail and working the tinker and the workaround. I hate it when my computer fails. I start banging on the table and, and being excessively mean to the poor person on the helpline who's just trying to help me. And so, again, I think that's that fascinating ergonomic discussion that needs to be had in healthcare about is our technology fit for task? A GPS in my car, if I take a left turn or a right turn that I wasn't supposed to take, that GPS will say recalculating to help you. I find when I go in the hospital, I get my password wrong. It says password wrong and throws me out of the system. Or if what I want to say isn't on the Dropbox, well, then I'm buggered at that point. So I think it's a fascinating area of ergonomic technology. And is that because I think it was one of the things you said is that we've not necessarily had those systems developed truly with people who are actually doing the job in complex, difficult, stressed environments. They're often, I, I can't remember whether it was yourself or somebody else who was saying that it seems sometimes that systems are developed for dealing with one patient for 12 hours. Uh, well, that was a cheeky comment I made that this it's, system, it's not an this system would be wonderful if I only had one patient. Um, I, I would just try and put a more positive spin on if you and I remain multilingual and multicultural, in other words, we can advocate for the patient, advocate for the team, advocate for the system, and understand them. I think we sort of become, I know this is buzzword ridden, but almost sort of cultural attaches and diplomats within the system. Choreographers. Oh, marvelous. Far better. As, as typically your comments are, Simon. <laughs> um, I just throw the ball up in the air and you, you knock it over the post. I think we need to see that as a strength. Managing complexity, dealing with uncertainty is something our specialties, emergency medicine, anesthesia and ICU, do very well. And we should own that as something we bring to the table, not just we're good at tubes and lines and tragically managing inevitable decline and end of life. So, I mean, that, that's definitely an area of my interest. We've talked about this on, on several things. And actually, in the UK, the GMC is now putting that into all the curricula for every specialty, that they have to be able to demonstrate that they both can teach, that they can learn, and that they can test 
<laughs> uh, uh oh, um, yeah, difficult. Understanding complexity and uncertainty. I'm, I'm really interested because it's an area which I've, I guess, I've struggled with about how do I do that with the trainees of the future. And you know, so there, therein lies the rub. Therein lies the fascinating. Stay engaged in our profession. It's tough with curriculum. A curriculum was described to me as a monster with fifty mouths and no anus. In other words, we keep popping stuff into it, but nothing comes out the other end. And I do worry that the med student of the future will have a dozen sessions on wellness and community and 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 then you'll say and the differential diagnosis for chest pain is oh we didn't have time left over for that and and there is more and more being thrown into the wheelbarrow of expectations yeah. of the physician's job uh, and that wheelbarrow will tip over at some point and by the way that might be a manifestation a phenotypic manifestation of burnout or i've had enough that you're just simply overwhelmed mm. Dear friends of yours and mine, Ian and Liz have done a far better job than I could ever do of talking about the imprecision of burnout and yeah. resilience. And it means different things to different people. But it might just mean the world's going too fast and I want to get off. And, and I felt all of those emotions. But the way I've been able to re-engage is by looking at the world through human factors and sort of being able to say, yeah, but, to a heck of a lot of things. And, and as a non-traditional scientist, to be able to stay involved in the discussion is a thrill of a lifetime. Okay, so I, mean, I completely agree with you. I think it's fascinating. I think one of the, the jobs that we do are incredibly interesting. There's so much that we can do. But there are clearly stresses in it. I noted that I was looking at some data from the UK that in the higher surgical, tra higher training programs for emergency medicine across the country, in some regions, 50% of our trainees have gone less than full-time. Now, a proportion will go less than full-time for family reasons, but many of them are going less than full-time just because of the pressures of the job. And that, that's a real challenge to me because they still love emergency medicine. They still love critical care. They still want to be there, but it's hard. And it's a real challenge for us in the future about how we're going to maintain that. I mean, I'm, I, I've got a portfolio career now. I do lots of different things, and that keeps me very sane and happy. I know you do something similar. And most of the people I know who are really happy in their job have got some kind of balance there. They don't just do this. I, I think you're right. You have a hobby, and maybe the hobby's also within the job. I mean, if people have gone to 50%, we've got to be careful we don't just look at it through our lens of but 150 should be the right number. Yeah, yeah. It, it could be that we're the, we're the odd ones and they're the sane ones. So I think it's quite possible quite in many likely. ways. Um, I, again, it, it comes down to how much it's a job and how much it's a definition of self. You know, there is that Japanese idea of... Ikigai. There we go. Thank you. Where you try and mirror what you get paid for with what you love to what's important, what you can contribute. I may have misquoted it. That's the lifelong search. Mm. Um, I, you know, we, we just need to maintain a dialogue with everybody, and that includes trainees coming through. I had a lot of negative mentors when I trained. A lot of people where I'd say, you're extremely bright, but I don't want your home life. Yeah. You've got a great home life, but for goodness sake, up your game a bit. You're very good at these things. You're not so good at these things. And, and, you know, part of the future for you and I as doctors, too, is accepting our imperfections, which we never did well. No human being does well. The next stage is actually sharing them guilt-free. And as senior old dodgy farts that you and I now are, Simon, we are obligated to share those. 
And then that very quickly segues, and it's important, it segues into, yep, we've licked our wounds a bit. How do we make things better? There is a danger with all the discussions of burnout, incredibly laudable as they are, that we become tagged with, don't go into those specialties there, the burnout specialties. So we need to very quickly pivot and say, no, 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 no. We're all burnout specialties. We, we all, if we do a self-test on burnout, they're designed for you not to describe your joys and your loves, but your burnout. So guess what? It's a, an ESR of psychological tests. We're going to get a heck of a lot of false positives. The difference is we remain resilient. Mm. And I think a lot of burnout manifests when the resilience drops, not when the stress spikes. So it's the divorce. It's the lost grant. It's the illness it's the all of those inevitabilities you know the C, the failure cv i think it's a wonderful idea where you and i share our failures last thing i'm going to come to you because we're going to come to the end of it if you, uh, it's a really on the spot question sorry oh, oh, no. always good for on the sort of questions um advice to the young critical care physician uh one jump jump in at the deep end it's well worth it i graduated from a medical school whose latin motto was too messed which means it's up to you yeah um, and it seemed to mean at the time, but I really think it means dive in and, and d- you know what, don't try and win every battle. People overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in a decade. And we need to retrain people to have those longer term time horizons. time horizons. And I was guilty of trying to achieve things yesterday instead of in the fullness of time. I would completely agree with you. If you enjoy this kind of work, this is a wonderful place to be. Oh, Magnificent. Fantastic. And look job. at the friends you get to meet. Oh, I if I can just say with this podcast, I feel like, you know, if this was tennis, I've played at the <laughs> Australian Open, I've played at the Canadian Open. I'm finally at Wimbledon, Simon. I'm uh, delighted well, to be here in it's my delighted in my, to see in my starched whites. It's wonderful to see you succeed on grass. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so Thank much you. for your time. Just before you go, we've got a small right. favor to ask. Since 2012, we've funded the blog and the podcast and everything around it from our own funds. And it's been great. We've really enjoyed doing it. But the blog and the podcast have grown. And now we've got such bandwidth and such people contacting us from around the world and listening that it's actually starting to get quite expensive. So if you feel like you can contribute even a tiny amount, then just whiz onto the blog, look on there, and you can make a small donation or even subscribe on a regular basis. Even a small amount of cash might make a big difference and help us keep St. Emlyn's free open access medical education. Thank you for your time.